Good morning, Joy Church. How you guys doing today? All right, good to see everybody. Woo! How many of you get your groove on with that music? Mmm, mmm. I just start feeling so like, mmm, mmm. I have no groove though. You can see I'm like stiff. My people dance like this. Wait, wait, but meets Anyways, um, I have no cool dancing, but uh, so good to be here today, man. Today is a great day. And uh, it would uh, be, I would be very, very remiss if I didn't mention the fact that the Ducks did beat the Huskies by 20 points. Yes. You know, as I, the Apostle Paul once said, um, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. And uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And uh, we wanted the Huskies to have the opportunity to have Christian humility. <clears throat> and so we actually are more humble in taking the victory by allowing them to receive the spiritual blessing of their humbling <laughs> no, no, we just beat them. That was good. That was so good, man. So sweet. But that's not even the best thing about today. How many of you know today, St. Patrick's Day? Really cool. You got your green on. Look at that right there. Yeah, green. Uh, so excited to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And uh, that's not all. I feel like Ron Popeil, there's even better things going on. Today is Joy Church. It's our third birthday. <laughs> Woo! We are three. We are like a crying, tantrum-throwing toddler of a church, right? <laughs> Just when you ask somebody to serve in the nursery, you see it all right there. Not the kids, the parents. It's, um, it's amazing. I'm kidding. But we're so blessed to be just in existence at all, number one. But uh, uh, three years, what a journey. God's done such amazing things. And uh, it was cool because today in our little team huddle before service, before first service, there was more of us in sort of the serving team uh, than there were by maybe even double the amount of people that were even at the very first week uh, in our living room. And so just seeing what God's done in three years is really cool. So let's give ourselves a nice happy birthday cheer. Yeah, really exciting. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, like, this year is going to be even bigger and better and greater, what God's going to do this year. And, uh, and I don't just mean, like, generally, like, no, there's cool stuff coming down the pike that I'm not going to tell you about today, but I'm just teasing it out there, like, really cool stuff. And God has such a bright future for us to be a light in this city. Amen? Really cool. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, it's not all that today is. Today is also Bethany and my 12-year wedding anniversary. Yes. So give her a hand. She's done a great job uh, pastoring me, maturing me. You know the difference between men and savings bonds? Eventually, savings bonds mature. So Bethany is practicing long-suffering. And uh, somebody asked me that today. Is 12 years long-suffering? I'm like, yeah, for her. <laughs> But uh, I love my, my beautiful wife. Thank you, sweetheart. She's the best. Um, 12 years, really exciting. And uh, a comedian once, somebody said, what's the secret to a long, happy, you know, a long marriage? He said, just keep going home to the same house every night. Don't go anywhere else. Kind of helps a lot of things, doesn't it? <laughs> just keep going back. Well, man, what an exciting day uh, to celebrate on our birthday. We're, we're also continuing in this series called uh, meet the neighbors, and we're talking about learning to love the people around us. Now, when you, you ask around and really just kind of pull culture and society, everybody loves the idea of love. How many of you say, yeah, I want more love in my marriage. I want more love in my family. I want more love in my neighborhood. Uh, we, love is like a good idea, isn't it? And we want more of it. We're not against it. You're not going to find many people who are like anti-love. Um, and so we love the idea of love, but where this kind of gets sticky is not in the uh, abstract or the idea level of love, it's in the application level. 
It's when we take love and we begin to define it into concrete terms rather than just being philosophical, we make it practical. And that's where things get sticky, where people start to disagree, so on and so forth. And the other thing about love is that it's kind of easy to feel good feelings and sort of loving feelings towards people out there, right? Like when you think about you know, people like, oh man, it's so sad, all the orphans in the world and people you know, out there, like people suffering in foreign countries. And it's kind of easy to feel good feelings towards, kind of like Beach Boys, good vibrations. You know, we feel sort of these thoughts of generally loving humanity. And, and as we talked about last week, it's God's job to love the world. But Jesus always makes the abstract actual, the philosophical practical, and our job is to love our neighbor. It's to love the people in close proximity to us. And what we actually understand is that loving those people right around us is a lot harder than it is to sort of feel good feelings towards people out there. It's the people that are around you, the people that interrupt your regularly scheduled programming of whatever you wanna do in your life, that cut you off on the freeway, that, that mess you over at work and steal your shift or whatever it looks like, your neighbors, it's actually harder to love these people that are close to us. And that's why I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. How many of you say, amen? Amen, amen. So neighbors are often hard. And, and you know, everybody has sort of a crazy neighbor story of like that neighbor, right? Now, nobody wants to admit that you are also someone else's crazy neighbor story. Like I'm gonna tell you a crazy neighbor story. And you know, I'm gonna talk about how crazy my neighbor was or is. I'm sure he still is crazy, this guy. <laughs> um, but somebody's preaching somewhere else talking about me and how crazy I am, right? And so we always uh, like to laugh about this, but we all had kind of crazy neighbors. Well, I'm gonna tell you uh, a story about a crazy neighbor of mine. And if you were here last week, you know I prefaced and said, this is gonna be like the best neighbor story. And you remember the two words that I, whitey tidies. So it's coming at you like a hurricane. All right, here we go. So Bethany and I were getting ready to buy our first home. We had a condo, but we were gonna buy our first home in uh, Medford. And this is years and years ago. Um, and so we, we go to this place, this house that was going to become our home. We didn't realize we were going to buy this house yet, but we were just checking it out. So we're looking in the windows and this man yells from across the fence, kind of like an aggressive Wilson from home improvement. You know, he wasn't like nice and wise. He was like, all right. And he's like, oh, you don't want that place. It's all messed up. He used some more colorful language um, that I won't repeat here. And uh, he was like, it's all messed up inside. There's $75,000 of damage and the walls are all, there are holes in the walls and it needs all this work. And we're like, all right, sorry for ruining your whole day. You know, we're like looking in, it looks fine. So we end up actually buying this house and lo and behold, we go in there and nothing is wrong with it. I mean, there's like a few holes in the wall where somebody had like hung a painting or something. I mean, sorry, you know, but it was totally fine. So we're thinking maybe he didn't want us to, to have it or he wanted to buy it for himself or whatever. And so we kind of went on with our life and we're like, that guy's a little strange. And we'd interact every once in a while and in the, the neighborhood. And then a couple, couple years later, we ended up getting a dog and uh, we wanted to expand our family. So, you know, I recommend getting a dog before you have kids. I think the right amount of time to wait to have kids is about 10 or 15 years when you get married. <laughs> that way you can just establish yourselves and, uh, you know, anyways, um, I'm teasing. But we got a dog and we had a dog named Baloo and just to get an idea of Baloo, he was like Disney, the shaggy dog, right? He was a bearded collie, so just lots of hair. He always looked like he'd been electrocuted just all the time, just <laughs> poof, you know? And Baloo is a great dog. We love Baloo, and 
this was before we got our other dog Munson. And, and uh, so Baloo had, you know, the whole place to himself and we'd put him in the backyard and he would just frolic and have a grand old time. Actually, he laid around grumpy. That's what he did. But he's a lot like me. That's how I frolic. What's wrong with you? Nothing. I'm actually totally happy. So Baloo, we had Baloo, our dog, and the neighbor uh, and his wife that were next door neighbors, they, they kept telling us, oh, we saw you, you have a dog now, and we want, you to, we want you to have your dog come over for a play date with our dog. Mm, I don't know about that. Who does? I mean, is that like a thing? I was asking in first service, do people take dogs to have play dates? Oh, Okay. Well, to me, it was weird. I was like, I could see taking humans to a play date, but this is an animal, just in case anybody was wondering. So anyways, um, I don't think Baloo was like lacking social contact. You know what I mean? Your dog is so unsocialized. Your dog is probably eats gluten too. Well, I'm sure he does. So anyways, um, we, <laughs> they wanted our dog to come over for a play date and we never made it happen. We just kind of didn't do it. Well, one day we decided to leave and go get groceries and it was evening time and and uh, we, we go out of the house. We're gone for about an hour. We come back and we're calling for Baloo. We're looking for Baloo and he's not in the backyard. He's gone. And we can't figure it out. There's no holes under the fence. Like the fences are six feet high or eight feet high. Like there's no, he's not, he didn't like get out. He didn't get abducted by aliens. Like he's gone and we're wondering what happened. And so we're calling out Baloo, Baloo. And then all of a sudden Bethany hears him in the backyard of our neighbors. And we hear him, like crying and whining, you know? And she's like, Jake, I think Baloo's in the back. I think he's in our neighbor's backyard. And so we're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? And so we, we, we worked up the courage to go over to their house and actually talk to them. And it's hard to walk across, the, you know, over and talk to somebody, knock on their door. So I did what every, you know, self-respecting man would do. I sent my wife. So she went, uh, <laughs> I got you back up. I'm doing something really important here. I'm on the phone call. Hey, yeah, there's marriage trouble these people have and I'll just be right behind you. So she, she goes over and I'm kind of coming behind her and she knocks on the door and we realize our dog has been dog napped and he's in our neighbor's backyard. <clears throat> and so anyways, you know, it's kind of an uncomfortable situation already, but it's about to get a lot more uncomfortable. So we, she knocks on the door and I'm about 20 feet behind her, like on the sidewalk. And, I, and, and so I see the door open and here's our neighbor, Steve, and he's leaning up against the door jam. And you got to get a mental image here. Tube socks, whitey tidies. That's all. You know how you normally answer the door, right? First of all, I'm going to say this. It's a lot of confidence. Okay, <laughs> let's just be honest, right? Yeah, I'm running for city council. You will vote for me, <laughs> you know? It's like Ron Swanson answering the door or something. But anyways, he, uh, <laughs> he's just standing there. And I see Bethany. I can't see her face, but I see her entire body stiffen into a board, like just totally stiffen from behind. And I'm just like. <laughs> and she's like, excuse me. Um, I think our dog, you know, eyes up here, ma'am. Eyes up here. I think, <laughs> I think our dog is in your backyard. And he's like, yeah, your dog's been running around uh, out in the neighborhood all day for hours and crying and barking. So we put him in the backyard to have a play date with our dog. And we're like, first of all, that's not true because we were just home with our dog. So you, sir, are both scandalously dressed and a liar. <laughs> and uh, so he's, <laughs> I don't know where he decided to make up a story. 
And uh, anyways, um, Bethany's like, okay, well, you know, we need to get him back or whatever. And so we got our dog back, but we were realizing, man, are they dog, they kidnapped our dog or dog napped our dog and answered the door in his underwear and tube socks. How do you have a relationship with this person now from here on out? Like we still live there for five more years. So like, you know what I mean? You're coming out and, and like you're walking along, you know, out in your, your driveway and he's like, hey man, I think I dropped a tool uh, over there. Can you check? I'm like, underwear? I mean, under there? I mean, oh my God. Oh no. What's <laughs> Like you can't unsee it. And how do you have a relationship from this point out? And so you just need to know there are people in the world, real people, real neighbors that will answer the door and they're whitey tidies and tube socks. Now, if you're, if you're like a, 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 a guy here and you're thinking, what's wrong with that? Let's have a conversation afterwards, okay? <laughs> because I want to guard the young 20-something women of the world from people like you. Um, don't answer the door. You know, this is, we're going to go home. Take up an offering. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> don't answer the door in your, in your underwear and your tube socks. So this is a funny story. You know, it's, it's crazy. This is what neighbors are like. And these are the people that Jesus wants you to love. These are the people that Jesus wants you to invite into your world. These are the people that, that we are expected to give our lives and lay our lives down for is our neighbors. And again, love is easy when it's abstract. It's hard when it becomes actual. It's hard when it becomes, now I have to have a relationship with tube sock underwear man. Like it becomes difficult. Dog kidnapping liar, you know? <laughs> is this even a category? Like what is, who is this guy? But as hard as it may be, the fact remains that we are called as followers of Christ to love our neighbors. And to bring that love down to the ground level, to make it real, to make it tangible. We're going to go into our text for today in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is a, a story that you've heard before, I'm sure, or at least alluded to this story that Jesus tells, but it's really, really rich. And it, and it opens up a lot of questions and, and even and answers for us as we talk about making love actual and really answering this question, who is my neighbor? So it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he's trying to trap Jesus, right? He's trying to catch Jesus in an answer and, and kind of mess him up. That's what this, he's saying when he tests him. And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself right, Jesus told him. It says exclamation point. So I'm sure he sounded just like that. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. In other words, you get an A plus, gold star. You got the test right. You like, you passed the test. You answered the question correctly, but that wasn't really what was at stake here. See, the intellectual answer to this question is sort of meaningless, divorced from the actual tangible reality of living it out answer to this question. So the man says this answer, Jesus says, right, do this and you will live. But then we hear this right here. The man wanted to justify his actions. The man wanted to, to, to prove himself. He wanted to justify himself that, that whatever he was doing uh, matched up to what he had just told Jesus the right answer. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to get a pat on the back. You're good. You get to get out of jail free card. When you go to heaven, you're, you're going to get in. You pass the test, so on and so forth. This is kind of what religion always wants to get, isn't it? It's like the right answer, and then I get a gold star, and I don't have to think about it anymore, right? I, 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 I just love God, and I, and I love people, and I don't have to think about anything else. Like, 
then I can just, I'm, I'm good with God and everything's fine. I can go about my business. And Jesus said, so he wants to justify himself. And Jesus doesn't really let him off the hook. because he, So he asks Jesus, he says, who is my neighbor? And this is a really important question because if you agree, like most people agree that love is good and that we're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love our neighbor, if we kind of agree with this idea, then the next question that comes is, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who really is my neighbor? Who's the person that is worthy and deserving of my love that I'm supposed to give my love to? He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. And he tells this amazing story. We call it a parable, but it's, it's a story that teaches us a lesson. He says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, when you see this in Greek, it actually is saying that he was beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten. And so this man is beaten, like it says, left half dead. He's beaten to the edge of his life. He's left half dead beside the road. And then Jesus goes on, by chance, a priest came along and everybody was like, oh, sweet, a priest, awesome. They're gonna stop, they'll help him. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. It says the temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And this is where Jesus kind of drops a bomb. He says, then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him going over to him or he's felt compassion for him. And then we'll go to the next part here in a second. Now, why is this meaningful? So for us, in our culture, in our place in history, a Samaritan is a term that we actually apply in a positive way. So if we say this man or this woman is a good Samaritan, we're referencing this story and we're, we're responding to the fact that post the teaching of Jesus, we see that this Samaritan is a good Samaritan because he helps this person, whereas these other people did not help him. And we don't necessarily see the cultural context here, but we need to look back into history and understand how shocking this would be to Jesus' Jewish audience. Because for them, the Samaritans were basically worse than uh, any other group of people, and they hated them. That's why Jesus says they despised Samaritan. Now, why did the Jews despise the Samaritans? And there's a lot of reasons, but basically it falls this way. The Samaritans were a group of people that were mixed race with Jewish people and pagan nations. And it was when the uh, exile had happened, these, this people group was brought in to the land of Israel to replace the Jews. So there was, there was hurt feelings there and problems there. They became syncretic, meaning they mixed the Jewish faith with their pagan religions. And so they basically had these other views. They, they, they saw that the temple was supposed to be on Mount Gerizim and the Jews thought the temple was supposed to be where the temple was on Mount Moriah so on and so forth. So they had religious differences. They had ethnic differences. They had political differences and they hated each other. Ducks and Huskies, right? Crips and Bloods, you know? They, they, they were at odds with each other. Um, and, and, uh, and so Jesus brings the Samaritan into the story and the Samaritan is like, ooh, Samaritan, like, oh my gosh. And he's the one that Jesus now casts as the hero of the story. And this is why it starts to get really kind of complicated for this man who's asking the question because he had the right answer. But now all of a sudden, well, now we have Samaritans walking around in this story and this is getting a little weird, Jesus. Like you're kind of blowing my mind here. You're kind of breaking my categories down. And Jesus goes on. He says, then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn. When he, where he took care of him. 
The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And Jesus finishes the story. He asks this question back to the man. He says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. There's an interesting little fact here that the man does not say it was the sum, the sum, it was the sum, the sum, the sum, he doesn't say it. He can't even get it out of his mouth. He says it was the one who showed him mercy. It's very abstract, isn't it? Um, because see, he can't, he doesn't love the Samaritan. Like the Samaritans are despised. They're, they're worse than, than animals. There was actually a slogan that said the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan that they would pass around. Now we've, we've heard that before in all kinds of racial and ethnic conflicts and it's horrible. It's racism and, and you know, prejudice and all this kind of stuff. And uh, nobody wants to admit that, that we have those too, right? That there's certain people that we see as less than deserving, less than worthy, less than human. And it's a dangerous perspective, but it's existed as long as there's been humans that were fallen, right? And Jesus brings in this person who the Jew sees as less than human and really worse than human. And he becomes the hero of the story. And he becomes the character in this story that is to be emulated. That is, where, that is the hero of the story. And this guy says, okay, it's the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. And here's what Jesus wants to do here. He wants to break down, and he does do this, break down every category of, of where we say, I'm justified in pouring my love out here and I'm justified in not pouring it out here because Jesus moves the target. He moves the definition of neighbor away from ethnicity, religion, race, gender, anything that, that sort of is a category where people would divide themselves. And he says, your neighbor is the one who needs you to be a neighbor. And the person who shows mercy in the moment when mercy is required. And that's what the Samaritan does in this story. And it's so amazing because the Samaritan had every reason uh, culturally, uh, socially, and even in the, in the actual situation that's existing at this moment that Jesus is describing to literally just walk the other way. And the people that should have stopped don't stop. So everything is kind of turned on its head. And this is where Jesus gives us this lesson. The person that shows mercy is the neighbor. That's, that is what matters. You can't justify yourself and get the answer right and not show love to the person that needs your love, regardless of their worthiness, regardless of how you see them uh, through your lens. Are you with me? So Jesus moves this. It's the person who needs you to be your neighbor. And we see here in this story, a few marks of authentic neighbor love, real Christian love, Christ-like love. Number one, what we see in this story that how we are to love, how we are to be a neighbor is this, personal involvement, not delegated involvement, personal involvement. I love to delegate. I'm trying to get better at it because I love it so much, right? When things are hard, when they're difficult, when I don't want to do them, isn't it great to delegate? Yeah? Like babysitting. Man, it's my favorite delegation. These are my children. Like we, we, they didn't like, you know, just happen. Like we, we wanted them and they're our kids and they sort of belong to us. And, and then we get to delegate keeping them alive and cared for when a babysitter comes. And, you know, when you get a good babysitter, you're just like, I love this person, right? Because you get to delegate something that is always yours. But you can't delegate being a good neighbor. You can't delegate being a Christian, you can't delegate this. It has to be personal. In the story, the Good Samaritan, it's his donkey. It's his 
money. It's his oil and wine. He takes him to the inn. He cares for him in the inn. It's not delegated. It's personal involvement. Number two, we see another mark of authentic neighbor love is inconvenience. The Samaritan stops what he's doing and, and he takes care of the, the person that needed him in that moment. Now, I was just in Israel a couple weeks ago and Pastor Mark and I were on the road to Jericho or the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And, and even as it was then, and it's still the same today, there's nothing in between that you are doing on that road. There, there's not like, hey, we're gonna go hang out on the road to Jericho. Yeah, that's what you do. You don't do that. It's just a winding, arid, desert, canyon, narrow road. And it's wilderness. Like when Jesus goes out to be tempted in the wilderness, this is where he goes. It's just like, there's nothing here, right? Now, some of you are like, I love it. We're under the stars and I smell like muskox and I'm camping. Like, no, but other than you, like there's nothing to do out here. And so when Jesus tells the story, everybody that's listening realizes the road to Jericho is you're going from somewhere to another place, from Jerusalem to Jericho, from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was a pilgrim road. It's where the Jews literally would come around uh, the mountains. They wouldn't go through um, down the, 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 the coastal valley. They'd come around the mountains and go from Jericho to Jerusalem because they didn't want to go through Samaria, okay? So they'd go around. And so pilgrims would come from Galilee to go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, and this is the road they would take. They were always on a journey going from Jericho to Jerusalem or down from Jerusalem to Jericho as the man in this story. And here's the point. Everybody in the story is on their way to do something else and probably something important. But the Samaritan is the one that, that allows himself to be inconvenienced. This is something for us in the Western world, in the affluent world, that is really hard for us to grasp is that the way Jesus requires us to love other people will be inconvenient. And just because, well, I have to be here or I have to do this is not an excuse to deny what Christ has called us to do and who he's called us to be. And real love is gonna be inconvenient. It won't fit into your schedule. And aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't love us conveniently? Well, you know, I did the whole salvation thing from like 1500s to 2000, but now that you're into the, I mean, we're done with that. It's inconvenient. My office hours are these times, like God's office hours are always open. Number three, mark of authentic neighbor love is expense. He used his own supplies, oil and wine. These are commodities that are, have value and worth. Um, and he uses them to his own hurt, his own expense. And he uses his own supplies to, to bring healing, the bandages, but he also goes to an inn and he pays for this man's wounds to be cared for. And then the fourth thing that we see is long-term commitment. He pays the innkeeper to continue to care for the man and put himself on the line for his continued care. See, this goes way beyond how we think about being a good neighbor. We think being a good neighbor means you move somebody's garbage can to the road when they forgot on garbage day. And we're like, what a good neighbor Bill is. Bill's a great neighbor. Thanks, Bill. Love you, Bill. Ducks fans. Oh, right. We're exactly the same. Both of us wear whitey tidies. We're exactly, you know, and we think that's what neighbors are. No, no, neighbor, neighbor is when you go out of your way and you put yourself on the line and you do irresponsible things because of love. And he puts himself on the line. Now, to give you some context here, the silver coins that Jesus is talking about are actually denarius, and they were basically roughly equivalent to a day's wage. And they found a sign from this time in history, a, a sign of an inn that would basically let us know that a, a stay at an inn like this one, like a roadside inn, was one thirty-second of a denarius. So the man gives him two denarius, which means he's giving him 64 days of care. So he's basically saying, I'm going to let this guy be here for two months on my nickel. How many of you would check somebody into a Motel 6 for two months? 
I wouldn't. <laughs> There's cheaper hotels on the, you know, six and seventh, I think. You find one of the places you can pay by the hour. You know, it's just uh, <laughs> wah, wah. Okay, anyways, so <laughs> how many of you would commit to really put yourself on the line, to put your bank account on the line and say, this is how I love long-term commitment. Now, what happens here? What do you see at the end of all of this? All of this, what, is it, what does it sum up to? It sums up to lavish love, over the top, abundant, pouring out, ridiculous, stupid love. This kind of love that just is like, that doesn't, we don't do that. It's not what we do. And Jesus is saying, you want to justify yourself, bro? That's exactly how he said it in Greek. He's saying, you want to justify yourself? Let me show you what a real neighbor does. He crosses the lines. He crosses the categories. He, he doesn't step over or walk to the other side of the road. He gets inconvenienced. He shows expense. He gets long-term committed. You want to talk about what it looks like to love in the right way? This is what it looks like. And so the guy is like, uh, he's really caught here because he has the right intellectual answer, but there's no application in his life. Who is my neighbor and the person that needs you to be? And what's so cool about this parable is that this is a prophetic parable because it actually foreshadows the way that Jesus loves us. You see, when we hear this story, we tend to think of ourselves as maybe the temple assistant who walks on by, or maybe we put ourselves in the position of the priest, or maybe even the Samaritan. Hey, we're supposed to help people. But actually, the character in this story that is most like you and like me is the man who's been beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten and is laying on the side of the road and somebody inconvenienced themselves and at great expense and personal involvement and long-term commitment came down from heaven and got down into our mess and said, I'm gonna take care of this person until the taking care of is all finished. And so when Jesus is telling this story, he's not, he's not giving them like, here's another good intellectual answer about love. He's about ready to do the same thing, but even on a way higher level of laying his life down and pouring out lavish love upon us who've been beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten with no hope. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, man, you know, this whole neighbor love thing's cool, whatever, but like, why should I do this? Why should I help other people? Like, what about number one? I want to take care of number one. But listen, when you've been beaten and beaten and beaten by the world and by abuse and by other people and by your own mistakes and your own sins, that's why we need a savior. And Jesus wants to come and be that good Samaritan for you and I, somebody who has no business getting down into our mess, but he's foreshadowing this year. He's our example, isn't he? That lavish love. So guys, how do we do this in a practical way? Well, I wanna give you this little line here that we do this by inviting the people around us, our neighbors, those who are near to us, to experience God's goodness through us. That we have this opportunity as followers of Christ to be a reflection of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, to know what it feels like to be beaten on the side of the road and to feel those hands come and hold you and begin to bind your life back together and we are now brought into health and wholeness so that we can go back out into the world and do what Jesus did for us. And we can invite other people into the goodness of God. And there's a couple of ways I wanna share with us how we can do this. Number one, we can share our space. Share your space. I think most of us are totally unaware of the life-changing radical power of hospitality. Now I'm, I'm Sicilian and I love to eat. And so food is like a big deal for me, and it's a big deal for us, for our family. Bethany and I love to go eat good food and go to restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And we're not like unique in that. I know everybody else in the world likes good food too. Um, and there's something so powerful about sharing a meal, getting around a table and hearing someone's story and just talking and eating. And it's so powerful that food, conversation, family, 
You know, there's a reason why at Joy Church in our groups, we, we really make food a big deal because it's really impossible to, to share the table and to be welcomed into someone's home and to hear and exchange stories and, and, and get to know somebody and, and keep your walls up, isn't it? There's something powerful about breaking bread, about food. It's different than just like, well, we were online and we chatted on Snapchat. No, it's different when you're breaking bread together. And so we want to be good at sharing our space. And I had an opportunity to go to Israel, as I said, and we got to spend a Shabbat, a Sabbath with a, a, a Jewish family. And there was 30 of us pastors in this room uh, having Shabbat dinner with this Jewish family. And I don't know if you know this, but pastors tend to be a bit jaded. Because they've seen a lot of things, seen a lot of problems, heard a lot of stuff, heard every story, you know, and, and then we tend to be kind of pastors also, maybe you don't know this, but tend to be kind of set in their ways, locked into their ideologies, locked into how things are and who's in, who's out and all that kind of stuff. So here's 30 pastors in this Jewish home having Sabbath. And this Jewish family, they just begin to give us their food. The little kids are singing songs. And, and the ice, you could hear the glacial melt of hearts of 30 Christian pastors whose hearts are being melted by a Jewish family uh, because we're experiencing hospitality. And they do these cool things where they bless their kids and we're all eating. And by the end of it, we're like, Lachaim, and we're, oh, and like everybody's in and like, oh, we're all Jews now. No, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't exactly like that, but... But it was, it was like, my goodness, you could take 30 super jaded dudes who like think they know what's up. You put them in one night of hospitality where someone opens their life, opens their world. You're with their little kids and they're the poor mom, you know, she's like in her 30s. She's chasing these little kids around and trying to like entertain these pastors and be like, put on a show and little kids are running around and it's this beautiful mess. And it's just like this whole thing going on. And that hospitality is so radically powerful. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, Radically Ordinary Hospitality says, radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. Living out radically ordinary Christian hospitality means knowing that your relationship with others must be as strong as your words and the balance cannot tip here. Having strong words and a weak relationship with your neighbor is violent. It captures the violent carelessness of our social media infused age. That is not how neighbors talk with each other. That is not how image bearers of the same God relate to one another. Radically ordinary hospitality values the time it takes to invest in relationships, to build bridges, to repent of sins of the past, to reconcile. Bridge building and remaking friendships cannot be rushed. Your home is a platform that is greater than this one to preach the gospel. Use it. Share your space. Number two, lend your ear. So many times as Christians, what do we want to do? We want to preach. We want to talk. We want to tell people the good news. We want to give people our ideas. But what we actually need to do is we need to listen to people. Because a lot of times you might have the right answer, but if the person isn't asking a question, the answer means nothing to them. And so we need to take the time to listen to people's stories, to ask them questions about themselves and to get into their world. Why? Because when we listen to people, the pathway that the gospel can take to get into their heart is revealed. When we will listen to people, you will find the pathway to bring the gospel into their situation. You know, and I'm not really great at this, so please don't hear me saying something that I've done and be like, wow, he's amazing at that. I, I don't really, I'm not very good at listening to people, honestly. 
But there are times when I've had the opportunity to just ask someone a question, maybe a, a barista or something. Hey, what's your tattoo? Like, what's that mean? You know, and, and just ask them questions. What's your family like? Like, you know, and you'll hear, oh, my family, we're kind of a mess. We're a messy family. Like, and then you go, okay, what's that? There's a little, a little something there. That, that thread is frayed. I'm going to pull on that a little bit. Tell me about your family. Oh, my dad. My dad's like that, you know. And all of a sudden, pretty soon, you have a picture of a pathway where, where the love of Christ can get in what was once a wall. And so we need to what? Lend our ear and listen to people. Number three, give your time. Time is really the most valuable commodity that we have. It's a zero-sum game. Nobody has more, nobody has less, and you can't buy it. You can't manufacture it. Time is a fixed commodity, and it's really what you're giving someone when you give them time is you're giving them your life. You know, if you're the kind of person that steals people's times and wastes people's time, realize that you're, what you're doing is you're stealing away their life. Uh, so don't be that kind of person, Right. But when we give time freely, what we're really doing is we're valuing and we're honoring the intrinsic value of another person's soul. And we're saying, you're valuable enough for me to give you my life by spending some time with you, some, some quality time where I, I am at my own expense and at my inconvenience and all this kind of thing. I'm stepping away from what I'm doing, whatever it may be, how grandiose and, and great it is. I'm standing down from that and I'm spending time to connect and I'm just going to give you some time. And I just want to tell you guys, if we want to reach our city and we do these three things, we will not lose. You just, you cannot stop hospitality. You can't. Because you set down two enemies at a table over bread and you start telling jokes and people start laughing. And guess what happens? It melts those walls. When you listen to people, you know, we think that people get, that we get their heart when we talk, but we don't. We get their heart when we listen. And they pour out and they say, I'm telling you about my story. I'm telling you, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I don't, I don't know why I'm talking about this, but you're just listening and you're not answering. Oh, you need Jesus. You need to give your life Jesus. And this is the Romans road and the sinner's prayer. No, but you just listen. And then when they, when you find that pathway, then you, you bring the gospel as a friend, right? As good news to solve a real problem. Give your time. It's, it's unstoppable. It's so powerful. Bob Goff he said, what often keeps us from loving our neighbors is fear of what will happen if we do. Frankly, what scares me more is thinking about what will happen if we don't. You know, we live in a city, a community that's, that has a lot of brokenness, but Jesus put Joy Church here three years ago, not because there aren't a bunch of other really amazing churches. We're not like the one true church or anything, but he put us here to do a mission for, for a reason. It's because there are so many neighbors that need neighbors. There are so many people that need space and time and an ear. And there's so many people that need to be invited in to the table and give them your best, that need, to, that need to hear and feel and experience Jesus and his broken body. And why do we take communion and eat and, and celebrate the broken body of Christ with bread? It's still, he's still in the bread. And it's not always bread you take at church. It's the, the Burger King bread that you break and give the, the kids that are at your house with your neighbors that you've invited over. Come on, somebody. Like people will experience and feel Christ through us, through our hospitality, through us loving our neighbors in a real and practical way. And we're here for a reason. But what would happen if we don't take up this call? You see, we don't need another church that's just a social club that builds a building and gets really comfortable and does, you know, just kind of has our own little club. And then every once in a while, outsiders come in and we teach them all the ways that we talk and that we sing and that we dress so that they can be one of us. No, we're called to be here to be a light, to be a place 
that goes out and is neighborly, that reaches into our city. And you know, the very first night that we started this church, that was our message, that we exist for those people out there. We exist to be a good neighbor. We exist to reach this community with the love of Christ. And that's how we do it, my friends, by being good neighbors. Today, as we get ready to close, maybe you're here and you're like, Pastor, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I, I like what you're talking about. I wanna, I wanna be a good neighbor. But listen, before you can, you can participate in the goodness of God into this world, you have to receive his goodness through Christ. Everybody comes into this kingdom, into this family in the exact same way. There is no tiered system, no stair steps at the foot of the cross. It's flat and we all come and we lay down and say, Jesus, I am 100% in need of your grace. And if you're here today and you wanna receive Christ, there's no special things you need to do. I just want you to pray with me and put your faith in Christ because if you will put your faith in Jesus, he's gonna give you everything in that moment. He's gonna save you and bring you into his family. And you might be like, well, I have questions. Well, if you have questions, come ask. Let's talk, let's dialogue about it. Whatever it is that, that you wanna talk about, even the hard stuff. And if I don't know, I'll tell you, I don't know. And they'll say, ask Bethany, she knows, you know. <laughs> but if you're here and you wanna put your faith in Christ, I just wanna ask you to pray this prayer with me. Let's all pray it together. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know that I've fallen short of your standard, but I thank you for your grace and your mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be reconciled with my father. I give you my life, all my hope and trust. I put it in you, in Jesus' name, amen.